this morning we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. So 1 Timothy 3, chapter 14, uh, chapter, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Um, so far, as we've been walking through 1 Timothy, uh, Paul has been addressing, I would say at large, how the church ought to function uh, and how its members ought to reflect the glory and the grace of Jesus to an observing world. Uh, a world that is not, you know, just uh, uh, utopia out the doors, but a world that is marked by sin. How is the church to conduct itself in such a way that the good news of Jesus is radiating out of God's people? Uh, and and that extended to, in chapter 3, up to this point, how... Uh, how pastors and deacons ought to be selected and how the church ought to know that these men are qualified for this work of service. But in chapter 2, it was also how the entire body ought to conduct itself so that they would be dignified and godly in every way so that the world will see the good news of who Jesus is. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, it almost like right smack dab in the middle of the book is where... Paul finally lays out, this is, this is the purpose of the letter. Um, so in, it's a, we're only ripping off three verses this morning, but it's really central to everything else that Paul says in the entire letter. And, and, and what's the, the danger, I guess, in a sense of, if we had never gotten to chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, what we might walk away with is thinking that if the church would just behave in a certain way, uh, then everything would be good, right? So like, it would be like if we could just check off all of these behavioral things and we could just clean up our lives morally enough, then people will see Jesus and it will all be good. But what chapter 3 verses 14 through 16 is going to hammer home is, is what makes that godly dignified living in the church and out in the world possible in the first place? Where does that come from? Uh, and so we're going to look at, uh, again, if you're not there yet, First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. It's going to be on screen for you, or if you have your copy, you can follow along. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So in in verse 14... Paul is, is kind of, again, why am I writing now to Timothy rather than just coming in person? And, and you notice he says, I hope to come to you soon, but if I'm delayed, this is why I'm writing the letter. And I think in our world, we could kind of take that line for granted, couldn't we? If, if you want to get in touch with somebody today, how many different ways do you have to do that? Uh, you can see their face from uh, the other side of the world through your phone. At the touch of a button, right? That's pretty incredible. You could send an email. You could write the email uh, and, and, and then send it and then afterwards go, ooh, I shouldn't have said all that and you can't unsend it. Well, except for now you can because the newest app update, that's crazy. Anyway, our, our means of, of communication are, are just crazy. You could get on an airplane and be on the 
the other side of the world sometime tomorrow. It would be a long day, but you can be there tomorrow. So for Paul to say, hey, I hope to come to you soon, but if I'm delayed, here's why I'm writing to you. Remember, Paul is traveling usually by foot across and covering hundreds of miles between places. At this point, Paul is probably writing from Rome, and so he's writing back towards Ephesus before there is, like I said, before cell phones, landlines, postal service. He has to wait to send the letter with somebody else that's going, or the church in Rome has to commission somebody to carry the letter for them. It's not even just as simple as we write the letter, we put a stamp on it, here you go, Roman courier, you'll get it there three days from now. Right, so we really don't even have any sense of how long between when Paul writes this until it gets to Timothy. But the, the, the point of this is communication takes a long time when Paul is writing. In the same way that travel takes a long time when Paul is writing. But what he is saying in the midst of that, in, in, in a world where things take a long time, he says, this cannot wait. In other words, like, I could tell you when I get there, but if I should delay, you need to know this. And what that would tell us right off of the bat, and you could, you could put a little star right here, and you could just write two words. Uh, start it like this. You could say disciple-making, and you could say won't happen on accident. Right? Making disciples will not happen by accident. Making people who are mature in the faith and raising them up to know who Jesus is and to walk with him in, in maturity doesn't happen by accident. Paul is saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know and you may instruct this body of people. In other words, in all of what he has said up to this point in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it says this intentional goal of glorifying God together requires intentional steps. The church will not just happen to fall on godliness by accident. Right? And that's all of what Paul is instructing them towards. This is how you ought to think. This is how you ought to behave. This is for those who claim godliness. Think of things this way. He is challenging them and encouraging them in the basis of God's truth to walk with the Lord in faithfulness. But it will not happen by accident. It's the whole point of why Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus in the first place. Right? He's sending Timothy to be there to raise a church up to maturity. And what I love about Paul's letters is it presents a, a different side of the coin than we see in Acts at times, right? In Acts, it's like Paul was here for three days, boom, started a church, moved on. You're like, wow, Paul is awesome. But then what was Paul doing? Sending people back constantly saying, this is how you ought to think. This is how you ought to behave. You're going to go and stay here for a while with these people and see them raised to maturity. Right, and So when you put Paul's letters together with his activity in Acts, you go, Paul is really intentional about raising people to maturity. So much so that in one of his letters he says that we were, like, we were so concerned for you. Like, right? like, like we, we are consumed with concern for the churches and how they are doing. And it would be easy to read Paul's activity in Acts and go, well, Paul just started a church and then moved on, you know, erased his memory bank and started a new work. And what you see instead is Paul seeing people come to faith in Jesus and then this incredible burden to see them walk all the way into maturity in Christ. 
So then uh, just a, a simple question before we're very far even into the text. How concerned are we with seeing every member of the body of Jesus raised to maturity in the head of Christ? How important is it for us to see every member presented mature in Christ? Or do we think, well, they seem to have a decent elementary grasp of who Jesus is. They're fine. Let's leave them. How important is it? Are we gripped with this desire to see people mature in Jesus? Are we gripped with the desire to see, and as we walk in this, are we gripped with the desire to see the lost people brought into the light of walking with Jesus? And then are we gripped with this twin passion to see those people raised up to maturity? Do we give it any thought at all? You know, that's why we have a pastor. I said, that's why we have a church. Right? That's what Paul is going to get into as we keep walking. So he says, if I delay, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, he draws out, I'm breaking it into two words, two ideas that Paul presents, but he's really presenting three. The first one is he calls the church what? He calls it the household of God. It flows out of, in earlier in chapter 3, we've seen these twin ideas with pastors and deacons both. What were pastors and deacons required to do in order to be pastors and deacons? Manage their households well. Right? And in the case of pastors, he even says this is why they ought to manage their households well. Because if he can't, in verse 5 of chapter 3, if he can't uh, or doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's household? The idea, like, and the people, or the idea that is carried in that idea of household is not just the things of the house, like the furniture and the walls and the doors and the windows and the, and the place settings and all that. What is the concern really for? The people in the house. And, and, and so what I'm getting at with both of these things that I'm going to present to you is that Paul is also challenging our notion of what church is. You and I might at times fall back and think that the church is this space where we meet at 105 East Cedar Street. And, and we might even talk about how the church was built in three phases, right? The first, the first phase was the original building. The second phase was the sanctuary. The third phase was the middle spot. But is that the church? Paul would say, well, that's where the church meets. That's not who the church is. Right? And, and, and there's a tendency, though, to see the church as building or institution or organization. And what Paul is laying out is the church is the household or the people who belong to Jesus. Right? So the church, when you look around and you come into, when you come to church, you're really coming to be with what? The corporate gathering of God's people. And it's not just any gathering of people or any household of people. He says it's God's household. So if I stop you right there and say, who's in charge of the church? Really fantastic news. It's not me. But if you walked out on the street and you asked somebody, who's in charge of Libby Baptist Church? What would they say? They would say me. Who's in charge of the house? 
God is in charge of the house. I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 2, and you can stick a finger in here for the other, um, the, other uh, the, the next phrase that Paul uses. We'll come back to this. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, I love this picture of, of how Paul, again, brings people and, 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 and this, uh, this image of a building together, but it's not about a physical building. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, uh, there was two groups of people. There were Jewish people, there were Gentile people. That was kind of the, the framework of the New Testament. And now Paul is writing to a background of people who did not belong to the Old Testament household of Israel. They, are, they, were, they were all of the outside people. They were viewed as other because they weren't circumcised by the ones who were circumcised, right? But then he says, but that was really just made in the flesh by hands. But he says, remember who you were. Remember that, it, that you were at that time, before Jesus, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Right? And if we just stop right there, that is who we are outside of God's saving work through Jesus. We are alienated from him. We are separated from him. We're strangers to the covenants of promise. So we're not partakers in them. We are a people apart from Jesus. We are a people without hope and without God in the world. I'm so glad that Paul didn't stop there. Because in verse 13 he says, But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Again, he's, this dividing wall of hostility, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, but you could really take any lines that people fall on separately and saying, in Christ now, these walls of hostility must break down and he's bringing people together. And it, and it breaks down in his flesh, not through anything that we can do. In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, in the same question, similar question, who, if, who is in charge of the house? Who is the cornerstone? Who is the whole house built upon? Built on Jesus. And, and why does anybody get included into the house? Through who? Through Jesus. What an incredible picture of a household, right? When he talks about you have been taken from far off, separated, alienated, hostile 
to being brought near in peace into, not near, but into the household of God, if you have come in through Christ. Does the reality of that ever just smack you in the face and go, who was I apart from Jesus? And what is now mine because of Jesus? That's, in, like, that's not just slightly different. Paul is painting oppositional differences. You were, you were dead and now you're alive. You were alienated. Now you've been brought near. You were far off and now you are in the house. And, and, and one of the things that this might challenge a little bit for us, uh, dear American brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we are a very individualistic people. And what Paul is hammering on in 1 Timothy and here in Ephesians is, is not just that as an individual, you and I were brought to faith in Jesus, but we were also brought together with others in Christ into his household. And at times we are uh, we might even fall into the trap of believing that that the 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 household, the people of God is optional as long as I have Jesus as necessary. And what the New Testament is 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 saying instead is that both are happening at the same time. If there is not a heart for us towards the church and and again not the building not the acreage, not the parking lot, not the physical space, but the people. If there's not a heart for us, for the people of God, there might be some disconnect between the grace that we have believe we've received and the grace that we are actually walking in. Like, it shouldn't be that we would minimize and, and, and bring low the household of God so that it is not seen as necessary when Paul says, this is what you've been brought into. This is the expression of it. And this is, this is the heart of 1 Timothy chapter 3, isn't it? Like when he gets into the next spot where he says a, a pillar and a buttress of the truth, it's like this, this fortress of the truth is the visible manifestation of God's truth to a watching world. Like this is the place. These are the people with whom we experience God's continuing work of grace in our lives. That's why he is so concerned in chapters 2 and 3 of talking about how we ought to conduct ourselves in it. It would be like the whole letter would be unnecessary if Paul's view of Christianity was you have experienced faith in Jesus, go home, be fed, and be satisfied. You don't ever have to see anybody else. Nobody else even has to know who you belong to. If that was Paul's view, the whole letter is just like, that's excessive. On the other hand, if the church is, by Paul's view, a necessary mechanism of God that we would grow into maturity and that we would share the good news of Jesus with a watching world, then everything he talks about how we conduct ourselves together is really, really important. It's foundational to who we are. It's foundational to reflecting and radiating the glory of Jesus in the world around us. So then the first question, though, that we would absolutely have to wrestle with and come to grips with is, how does one become part of the household? Because in in terms of a physical space, if we see church as the space, 
If we see church as the building, if we see church as the 11 o'clock gathering of, the, of a select few groups of people in Libby, Montana who have faith in Jesus, then all you have to do is show up at 11 o'clock. Right? If it's just a matter of time and place, show up at the right place at the right time. Hey, you're in. But is that what Paul just said in Ephesians chapter 2? No, he said you were alienated, you were cut off, you were separated. Spiritually, you can be, like, you know, physically you can be in the space, but spiritually you can still be alienated and separated from him if you have not entered in through him. The only way into the household of God is through the means by which the owner of the household has made. And what is the way that the owner of the household has made? He sent his eternal son... Jesus, to take on flesh, and we're, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I cannot, could not ever live. And perfect, he went to the death that you and I deserve to experience. He took it on himself, making peace between us and God. So that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans chapter 10. But if we view the church as only the space and the place, we go, well, I don't really know what the... If you, you're in. Now, question. If you are at this point, if you, if you have not expressed faith in Jesus, are you, are you welcome or not welcome to come at 11 o'clock at Libby Baptist Church? You are absolutely welcome. Because of this other part. What is happening when the household of God comes together? We are reminding ourselves constantly and proclaiming to ourselves and to everyone who is here every time this is the only like this is what brings us together. It's not just that we like this building at 11 o'clock on Sunday. We are saying that together we have experienced the grace of God through faith in Christ, that He alone is our hope in a world that otherwise we have no hope in. And we are encouraging each other to constantly fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of that faith. And encouraging each other to grow in it and to walk in it and then take that good news back out into the world wherever we go as soon as we let out at 12 or 12.15. And so if you're here, it's not, uh, hear me on this, I'm not saying you're not welcome to be here, but I am saying that just simply being here is not part of the household. The household is only entered through faith in Jesus. So that would be a, a, an important question to wrestle through. Am I, am, I, am, I, am I physically near or am I spiritually in the household because of Jesus? Which leads to the next thing that Paul talks about, the, the next phrase or the next word that he used. He says, which is the church of the living God. So the household is the church, and the word for church is, is without going into Greek, it basically just means the gathering or the assembly of the called out ones. So in, in, in a non-religious term, this would be like somebody would call a meeting and send an invite to the people who were part of that gathering, right? So uh, it's, it's the, 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 the gathering is, is uh, if it's not spiritual, the, the gathering is Kiwanis Club. It's, it's Rotary. It's like the people who are called together for a specific task. 
But for the church, it's not just lumping people together and then going, well, now what's our purpose? We should probably find out a purpose now. The church is called out and, 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 and called out from darkness into light. Ephesians chapter 2, we're, we're, we're just talking about this. People who were alienated, who have now been brought near and who've been called to gather together in this household, being formed together. And it's not just any kind of gathering. He says it's, it's a gathering of the living God. So then another important question that we would wrestle with is, is what do we think happens when we come together? Who do we think orders and, and, and really gets all of the glory and honor and praise in our gathering together? Who is the one who we are serving in our gathering together? Who is the one who holds authority over us in our gathering together? Who is the one who makes our gathering together possible? And you see, we're, we're circling back to this idea of it, this is, this is, it belongs not just to us, it belongs to the Lord. And then we, we steward our time together. And so then all, you ask, how do we steward the time? And that's why Paul goes into all of the details of how the church ought to behave when it comes together. Because of who we are in Jesus, because of our common faith in Christ, what does it look like when we come together? That's why he writes 1 Timothy 1, 2, and 3. That's why he talks about if we profess godliness, how does, it, how does it play out in how we pray for one another? How does, it, how does it play out in how we pray for the world? How does it play out in how we uh, view the world and their need for Jesus? How does it play out in the way that we dress? How does it play out in the way we manage our households? How does the way it play out in the way that we manage our relationships? How does it play out in the way that we manage our finances? How does it play out in the way that we either are addicted or are not addicted to other substances? How does it play out in all of these other things that are qualifications for leaders in the church? how does faith in Christ impact all of those things if not completely that's why 1 Timothy 3 14 through 16 is so crucial to the rest of what we've been talking about and he says this household this gathering of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth we've been talking about this a little bit in, in previous weeks but again, the, the visible manifestation. Like, so when people want to know what does God's activity look like in the world, the first place that they ought to be able to look is God's household. <laughs> what is God like? For the love of mercy, they ought to be able to look in the church and go, this is, this is what faith in Jesus looks like. This is what it looks like for a people to be called together and to interact with one another who, are, who have been transformed by the grace of Jesus. This, like they, they just stick their head into the church and go, what does it look like? One of the, the most convicting, honestly, the most convicting thoughts that I've been having for the last several weeks uh, it stems a little bit to some, somewhat of our Wednesday night ministry, but then it extrapolated really quickly. It's not just siloed into our Wednesday night ministry. But one of the most sobering and, and humbling thoughts that, that has just, like, it, it, in a way, it kind of terrifies me, is that what people see when they interact, whether it's in the public gathering of Libby Baptist Church or with us out in, our, in wherever we go, for many people, that will be the lasting impression of what God is like for them. 
This is what a relationship with God looks like based off of this person who professes godliness. Our response to to kids who are either uh, uh, doing really well behaviorally on a Wednesday night or really poorly behaviorally on a Wednesday night, our response in the middle of it will color their perception of the church, but more importantly of Jesus for the rest of their life. Because you belong to his household, what you do profoundly matters everywhere you go. And I, and I say that because that is a terrifying thought, isn't it? That somebody's view of Jesus could be colored by their worst interaction with you. Or conversely, your constant interactions of displaying the grace that comes only through knowing Jesus could positively impact their view of who God is. Which is what it, we ought to be, right? In chapter 2 of First Timothy, in verses 3 and 4, Paul, if you remember, he said, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that was right after he had said, Pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And remember what the aim of that was. God desires to see people come to salvation. And the manner in which we as the assembly of God's called out ones, of what we do as God's members of God's household, the question for you and for me is, what kind of impact is my life having on people who are observing it? And that's not to put on you a, a burden of, uh, again, of checking off a list and going, okay, I did all these things so people will think more of Jesus. Whew. I'm not talking about that. But I am asking, is your life given over to growing in Christ constantly and experiencing His grace so that you can extend that same grace, that same truth to people around you? And is, of the, is that of one of the utmost concerns for your life? Not necessarily what you do for a living or, or, or what you obtain in this life, materially or, or whatever else, but is it of an utmost concern for you that your life is to display the riches of the glory of Jesus to people who see you? And then Paul goes into what, what kind of things, like what is the basis for truth? What is the basis of like the truth that we hold to? What is the, the basis for what transforms our life, brings us near? And it, in a really simple, early, like this is like an early hymn that he lays out in verse 16. Like one of the, like just an early, uh, you call it like an early song of the church displaying or, or radiating the truth of what Jesus has done. So he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And if we just take it line by line, he was manifested in the flesh. In other words, Jesus came in the flesh. The eternal Son of God dwelt among us in order to pay for our sin and the sin of humanity. In his humanity, he suffered 
He died and he was buried. And then it says, though, line two, and we're walking very quickly. Like You could also ask, what are the components of the gospel? Like You just look at the components of who Jesus is and what he's done. Vindicated by the Spirit. He was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. After paying for the penalty of sin and death, he didn't stay dead. He conquered death forever when he was raised from the dead. Vindicated by the Spirit. So although the world had put him to dead, he didn't stay gone. And the the, the Spirit testified, this is not just an ordinary person. This is the Son of God. And the scene by angels is kind of like, you know, where does that play out within the timeline of who Jesus is? And and I, and I started to think about this. Just think about it, and it may be a challenge for you. Just jot down all of the different ways that you see angels show up throughout Jesus' life and ministry. Right, when he's born, the angels show up and proclaim his birth to the shepherds out in a field at night. After his temptation where he's 40 days in the wilderness, who does it say ministered to him? Angels. When he was raised from the dead, who was at the garden announcing his resurrection? Angels, right? Like, why are you looking for him among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Who testified about him when he ascended into heaven? Angels, right? So like he ascends, the disciples are sitting there watching him and watching him and watching him and, and then angels show up and say, why are, you, why are you staring at the clouds? He's coming back in the same way. Seen by angels. The heavenly host declares who he is. Proclaimed among the nations. If you think about it, at this point in 1 Timothy, we're, we're talking like mid-60s, 80s, so 30 years roughly following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. At this point, the gospel has spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And you go, that seems like kind of a long time for that to take place. It's actually really, again, no cell phones, no landlines, no postal service people going and the gospel proclaimed among the nations so that Paul is even now writing to people who were not part of the Old Testament people of Israel. And not only was he proclaimed among the nations, but he was believed on in the world by his disciples first and now by people from every tribe, tongue, and language. Revelation 7, 9 gives us an even broader scope of this in the view of eternity. When John says, After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and verse 10 is not on the screen for you, but and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That Jesus is coming in the flesh. Jesus' life that reflects his full humanity, full divinity, or fully being man, fully being God. His death, burial, and resurrection on behalf of sinful humanity. His resurrection from the grave and his ascension back into heaven is ultimately being proclaimed and resulting in the praise of people from every corner of this planet for all of eternity. 
but it also means that it is a message or and a truth to be acted upon. Notice that if, if, if this hymn was just split and it said he was proclaimed among the nations, taken up in glory. Yeah. They talked about him, and then he was gone. Or if it just said he was believed on in the world without any proclamation, you go, well, people just have to like, find their way to him. But instead it says that he was proclaimed among the nations. And there, there, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a thought here that pro- proclamation requires somebody to do what? Say something. And believed on requires people to do what? Respond and hear. So this early, from the very early, this early hymn is calling for the church to be a people who take the good news of Jesus everywhere they go. And then he was taken up in glory. And, and again, the great reminder of the ascension is that he will return in the same way. We are awaiting a day when he brings all things to their right end and he makes all broken things new. But that calls us to faithful gospel living until he returns it requires of us as the household of god as the as the assembled people of god it requires us to be a people who are faithful in proclaiming who he is until he returns it requires a, of us to be a people who cling to the truth of who he is regardless of what comes from any other direction So the, the, the big takeaway question might very, simply, very well simply be, am I part of the household functioning as a part of the household or am, an I in a, or am I an observer of the household? I see how the household functions from a distance, but I am not yet a part of it. Or I'm part of it, but I'm just like, hey, wow, the household's functioning. What is God calling you to do in faith-filled obedience to who he is, the truth of what he is, the truth of what he has done, and the life he calls us now to lead in Christ. Is that the truth of who he is? Is that burgeoning up in us a growing heart to see other people experience the same grace? Does it well up in us in a desire to see other people brought to maturity in Christ? Does it give us a burden for people who are not yet a part of the household? Who are we as the household of God? Who am I as an individual in the household? Some questions to wrestle with this week.